Hello! This episode is with the wonderful Sean Hughes, who is longlisted for the Booker Prize for her amazing work, Pearl. She also won the Seamus Heaney Award for her poetry. She is a legend. She phoned me from her house that she is renovating with her partner who's a carpenter. She had a little vape in her hand. She just had this wonderful, lovely energy. This is another two-parter. There is so many episodes to get through, so I'll release that before our next Friday episode. Other than that, let's get into it. Oh, and because I always forget, we have some new people. I'm Grace Shackleton. This is the San Clemente podcast. Let's listen to Sean. I read your book yesterday. And it was exactly what I needed because it's so calming and you're so like immersed in this beautiful little village and all these different lives. And hearing you talk about doing up old houses and all of that, that sounds so connected. Like it feels like it's a real part of the person who wrote it. Does that feel that way to you? Yes, I think that the um well the original inspiration for the whole story was the building. Um because I used to cycle past this very, very beautiful hall that was made of lots of different pieces from different ages. So it had like every different kind of shape of window in it. And it was always like one bit was leaning on another and it was and I really loved this building and I invented a set of people to put in the building. And then those characters sort of stayed with me for life and they got older as I got older. And then I, when I moved back to this area, I went back on my bike along that track. I used to go along it all the time because my first boyfriend lived down there. So we had like a, we'd worn a groove, I think, in the road between his house and mine, um, like cycling along this way. And um, at that time, um, sort of in the late 70s early 80s there were lots of crumbling old buildings around here most of them are all like super done up now and very smart but at that time they really weren't um so I went back and try and find this building after all this time and it's gone no yeah so I'd already written a part of the story where um I don't want to give a spoiler uh, but like when the building is destroyed but when I went back after a long gap to go and live in my home village and I was looking for it and I thought oh it's really been done up that looks really smart and it's quite funny I seem to remember it being like in the next field along and then someone said to me no no that one just fell down that completely fell down and the one that's in the next field along that's just a new construction completely so I don't even have a photograph of it now um I would really like it if someone could find one for me because that was the building that started the whole story Wow, oh my god. That's incredible. So you, you wrote the the bit about the the building from the story collapsing before before you realized that this one had been demolished or the other way around. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, I had no idea that life had imitated art, imitating life. I had no idea that it that in fact when I first came back I just thought someone had rebuilt it really smartly and that I just misremembered when you went to the bottom of the lane whether it was on the right or on the left and then somebody said to me no no that will fall down that's so spooky that like it is isn't it it's really odd oh is that kind of what got you into doing up old houses and preserving them I don't know I guess I'm I am a bit of an enthusiast of buildings and Mm. I think um like the bit of creativity the bit of making stories that I find really difficult is the plot and so um I find it very easy to imagine settings and the house in the story I've never I had never set foot in it obviously you can't now it's gone but the most I'd done a cycle past the end of the lane I hadn't even gone down the lane um but I find it very easy to sort of imagine myself stepping into particular buildings and like the smell of them and like the way that the rooms connect and if there's a step between rooms and things like that like I can conjure the world of it like really easily and um I you know I can sort of inhabit that world and wait for different people to walk in and tell me who they are 
and that they, they the characters sort of emerge from the setting and they just appear and they tell me who they are and they talk to each other um but i had these characters in this setting for such a long time and i didn't know what would happen to them i didn't i didn't know what their story would be for ages um and then the story was like the last piece of the puzzle for me um so i i guess all writers are different there's like the three things isn't the setting and the character and the plot and some people are inspired first by the plot and then they people it and you decide whether it be where they're going to be and i seem to work the other way around i love uh, first of all i know where they are and then people walk in and do stuff and then eventually i'm thinking right well it's not a story yet unless something happens so like what's going to happen to them I love asking people about exactly what you just said not just I keep asking about place at the moment and your book is like such an interesting exploration of place but I also love asking people about how their characters develop and like whether they're characters they feel like they're kind of living through or are there people who kind of like come up and tell them no I wouldn't do that this wouldn't happen and then they kind of yeah have to work well, I got a bit them. carried away with creating the characters when I first wrote about the the place and put people in it because it was such a big place and lots of windows I like put different people in the different windows so it started off with loads more people there were loads more brothers and sisters in this family when I first wrote it and every time I rewrote it I took more people out more people out um and because I would sort of start interrogating the the character and say well what are you doing here why why are you here what you know what is your function and there was one character who I realised after lots of drafts and, you know, she'd been with me a long, long time. I realised that her main function was to not be like Marianne. I thought, you are in this story to be a person that's close to her who reacts differently. And um, I thought there's no excuse for a character whose only function is to be not like somebody else. I thought, that's just lazy writing I should, you know, if my character, my narrator is strong enough, she doesn't need a character next to her not being her to make clear who she is. And so I dropped her. And then obviously what happened was I kept isolating my narrator more and more because I took away more and more people from around her until she was left on her own. And that obviously changed her character because then she became quite a lonely person, which she hadn't been to start with. That's such good advice on how to kill your darlings as well, because I feel like mm -hmm. so often there's just like general advice on like, oh, yeah, just cut it if it doesn't work. But like being able to interrogate the characters and ask them. It's really, oh. really hard to work out what doesn't work though, when you're in the midst of it. I, I Probably my, my process is just so um, inefficient that like I have to sort of see that character all the way to the end and then go, why did I put you there? You know, so by then you've, you've created huge amounts of stuff about these people and they just go, <laughs> just drop them. Um, A.S. Byatt said a really interesting thing in an interview that she realised very late in her writing life that she kills off characters who are like her or who are based on her, that she keeps getting rid of them if they're like her. And somebody pointed it out to her and she was like, oh, no, you're right, I do. But like she'd done it lots of times before she spotted it. Um, so I thought that was really interesting that somebody who's such an amazing critic and so intelligent who created all of these books and, you know, decades later, somebody said, why do you kill the people who are like you? Wow, that's so interesting. I, must, I think that's always really spooky. Like, I think there's that kind of weird coincidence thing like you have with with the house. But sometimes people write stuff and then it kind of comes to fruition. So I guess you want to catch that. Yeah. Otherwise you're like, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So you invent something and then you later find it's a part of your life and it's almost like you've conjured <laughs> it. But I mean, that is just coincidence, but you do have that yeah. feeling, you know. Yeah, it sounds like, like super. Um, did I make that house fall down, you know? Um, I don't know. yeah like it's obviously ridiculous but I I guess it's maybe like an intuitive thing like you're tapping into something else like a, a sense that people have and then when you write from your subconscious mm. these things happen not because you're making them happen but because you're tapping into a different set of information you have maybe 
yeah yeah and um I'd always um imagined that when Marianne loses her mother that she forgets how to read that had always been like a really important part of the story to me that the sort of the world of reading to me you know books have been my salvation all my life I can't imagine how I would have coped without their company forever and so I took something away from her that was really really precious to me um and also my mother taught me to read and um I I I couldn't imagine how I could have held on to that gift that she'd given me without her um and so I took away this sort of really really precious thing to me from my character which is an act of cruelty really and then um about 20 years after I'd invented that little bit of the book that was one of the few bits that has sort of always been there it's hardly ever changed um I found out that I'm really dyslexic no I didn't know I didn't know um yeah I was working in an FE college and you had to do you know like the screening with your students so good practice you join in what they're doing you know and my screening came back worse than everybody's mine was terrible and uh, so I took it to my colleague who's doing the screening and um I said oh you know what score out of 30 should we send on to um the assessment department she said oh anything over 26 I said what should you do with 29 she said well they can't do a levels that's ridiculous and I said that was me I've got three degrees by now that was me so I found out that I that I am really really dyslexic um but obviously I went to school at a time where that didn't exist and because my mother had taught me to read at home before I even went to school she wouldn't let me go till I was till I could read basically um I didn't know till I was in my 40s that I am really really dyslexic and it made sense of lots and lots of things but I'd already invented this character who's really dyslexic um that's just weird isn't it yeah like you knew before you knew yeah yeah that's brilliant what's it like as a dyslexic writer because I feel like it's one of those things where loads of people will be dyslexic and write or want Mm. to write yeah what's the kind of myths around it um well a lot of people think that if you can read and write you can't really be dyslexic which is obviously nonsense um as long as you learn how how to in a particular way once you've got the decoding skills you can decode as well as anyone else um and I found that a lot of people like me who study literature and really love literature are quite dyslexic um because you you tend to need to read things lots of times I tend to misread or guess and race ahead in my mind and so I read things two or three times and I love reading the same text lots of times that's my favorite kind of reading is reading the same thing lots of times so obviously that made me great as a literature student because everything on the syllabus I'd read three times so I was a really good literature student um and um there's a there are a lot of poets and sculptors who are dyslexic there's a massive massive crossover in those two art forms of uh, people who are dyslexic and I think it's to do with 3d thinking that um there's a a particular sort of um skill of a dyslexic brain is to be able to um picture things in 3d and to create things that you see from many angles. So a poem rather than a book would be like a natural mode for a dyslexic person because it's like it is a construction and um, you're thinking about the shape of it. You're not just thinking about the sound, but you're thinking about the unit of the line and the unit of the sentence and the, the shape of it. So, And the same with sculptors rather than people who draw. Um, so... and. Um, usually what happens if you go on a writing retreat with poets is that like none of them can drive (laughs) none of them can add up so like going to the pub is a complete nightmare because like nobody can get there because none of them can drive when you get there no one can work out what they what they owe um (laughs) that's amazing so Um... I think that there are particular art forms where that kind of dyslexic thinking is a massive asset um and I think that probably the problems with writing a novel for me 
were to do with having a brain that sees things as a shape and trying to make the shape of the book perfect like you would a poem like trying to organize it and look at what it looks like and make everything add up exactly the same and everything and it um I, I wrote a lot of very bad versions of it when I was obsessing about the form, really. And that has let go of that and sort of just let the characters do what they wanted to do, give them more freedom, not worry that it doesn't exactly line up with the original poem or have exactly the right number of sections and all that sort of thing. Um, and just sort of allow it to be um, a much, I don't know, more instinctive path. I can so it did it sort of hold me up in that, you know, when I realised that, like, thinking like a poet isn't really that helpful when you're writing a novel. Well, I wanted to ask you about it. It's interesting because, like, when you're talking now, I can see the construction of your your answers. Like, it does feel like um, like a building or something. Like, I haven't interviewed anyone who's had that kind of um, style of response. It's really lovely. Oh. I wonder, um, am I doing it wrong? No, you're doing it totally right. No, everyone's everyone responds <laughs> differently. And it's so interesting. Like you get to learn so much. And yeah, because of the format of like a question and then an answer, people aren't always talking like that. So when they do, you get like a really interesting sense of how they think. Like I spoke to someone who wrote fiction, but she normally writes as like a nonfiction essayist. And her answers, like you could map out, you know, point evidence conclusion each time <laughs> and you can see her like right. pulling in like the secondary literature and stuff and it was like so interesting to interview because then you kind of just like sit back or there are people who have worked in like other you know industries who you can see them pulling in their like their oh, expertise yeah. and like what they do so as soon as you said you think in terms of space I was like oh that's what's going on here because you've got like a really rich way of answering the questions that's like really oh I see right well I always think that well you know the the, the word stanza you know in, in poems mm -hmm. that when somebody told me that it's Italian for room I was like yes I completely get that I that you, that. you have a, a building of a poem and you're making rooms and you either want them to connect to each other or they're separate and like to me it is like a building block yeah that's fascinating and the thing about the sculptors and the writers I don't know if you've read any of Claire Fuller's stuff before yeah so she was on the the last series of the podcast and oh yeah he was a sculptor before she was um right so I guess like there's that and I just find the whole space thing fascinating and also you being a poet and then bringing that into your work and basing it off this like really incredible poem that I feel like I don't know enough about and then when I was like, well it's really really hard to read this is the thing I mean there are yeah. some really beautiful translations I love Jane Draycott's translation Simon Armitage's translation they're both wonderful contemporary translations of it but you can't really translate everything about it like Jane Draycott translates the sort of mood of it this very very intense uh, you know um everything is more brightly colored and like those moments of experience where everything's gone crystallized because the emotion is so is so strong in it she's so good at getting that that feeling across but she plays with the form I think really really well and Simon Armitage's translation has like lots and lots of attempts to um um to use like the repetition and the structure of the original um and but the, the, it is impossible to translate all of it because it is so intricate and meaning um, it, so quickly doesn't it like I do um I've just finished my master's but translation from Greek and Latin and it's so like you know it can change from century to century the meaning of the word so you're always just trying to capture yeah. that specific bit and then I don't know if you've ever um read the McClatchy translations of Horace no I don't know they're, those. Oh, they're fascinating because he basically got a bunch of poets to translate some of them don't know Latin some of them are like scholars 
And so some of them are really funny, some of them are really modern, some of them are kind of like an in-between state. It's just like so interesting to see modern poets kind of let loose with translation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, obviously, when you translate, you're making a new piece of art. There's no there's no way that you're like rendering that that piece of art. It is a new thing that you've created. And um, I do really love the translations of that poem. Um but I don't see them. They they are not that poem. Nothing can be that poem. I think it might be the most intricate, most completely realised piece of writing I've ever, ever tried to read. Um, it's very hard to read because obviously, even though it's contemporary with Chaucer, which is quite readable, really, um, because it was written in Cheshire. So it was written sort of where I grew up. It was written in the dialect of Cheshire at the time, which then modern English then, you know, evolved from the London English that Chaucer knew and the Cheshire English um, has fallen a lot of it by the wayside. So um, it's it's really, really difficult to read it. <laughs> uh, it's definitely well worth reading a translation, though. I would, I just would recommend it because it's the most astonishing piece of work, I think. Is there, there's a, is it the Green Chapel that you talk about in the book? Yeah. So no, well, the Green Chapel I've borrowed from Sagarian and the Green Knight, mm -hmm. which is by the same writer. Well, it's in the same manuscript. It's generally considered to be the same poet. I can't say that's the same poet because like nobody knows who wrote them and there's only one copy of it. So who knows? Um, but generally considered to be the same writer. Um, and obviously that's a much better known story because it's an adventure story. So it's been sort of translated into films and children's books and all sorts of stuff. Um, and obviously in that one, he goes to the Green Chapel. But the and the Green Chapel wouldn't have been very far from here because the Gawain's journey actually goes along one of my favourite dog walks. It goes like really near where I live. Um, but um, the, the chapel that I put in the book was just sort of an amalgamation of lots of little ruined chapels that there are all around my village. I love that sense of like magic reading your book about kind of I don't know like all these little cultural things that we have across the whole country and all the folklore and the poetry and these like things that kind of can kind of get a bit forgotten in like an industrial world or a world where we kind of think that like you know when people think they don't have an accent if that makes yeah. sense like it feels yeah. like you're kind of reviving that sense of <laughs> connection that we have with these like villages and old dialects and everything it was really beautiful and it feels very green to read it you know yeah and yeah it's very interesting hearing about the dog walks I love that <laughs> when... the, the thing is that somebody said to me um oh did you do lots of research into folklore you know mm -hmm. did because there's lots of folklore in it and they and I said no absolutely none I just listened to my mother um I didn't sort of go out and find folklore I just remembered what it was like going for a walk with my mom really and she would say oh do you know the name of that field and you know, fields have names you know that fields have names you know so okay. she'd say oh and I know the name of, do you know the name of that field and then she'd say why do you think it's called that and I wonder why they called it that do you think it could be this or do you think it could be that and then you'd walk along the hedge and she'd go, do you know how old this hedge is? You can count the plants from there to there and then you can know how many hundred years old. So she's this hedge is older than that farmhouse, for instance. And um, you'd go past someone and she'd say, oh, I wouldn't go in that garden, you know. No, I think someone put a curse on it in 1892 or something like that. Uh, so living in the place I grew up and, you know, remembering all the things that my mum used to say, and the stories she used to tell. The folklore is just sort of very naturally embedded for me. And in some parts of the world, where the book has um, come out in different parts of the world, and there are different translations, and some people completely understand what I say when I say it's my home village. That doesn't mean I've always lived there. It doesn't mean I live there now. Um, my brothers and sisters don't all live there, but it's where my mum is buried where my grandparents are buried um and um so it's I know that's my home village and I know what the rituals are for my village and the beliefs and the accent and all that stuff um and some people just don't have that anymore they don't say like well where's your home village whereas like 
my readers in like India or Southern Ireland or Italy, they all go, well, yeah, everyone's got a home village. Of course you've got a home village. Doesn't matter Yeah. if you don't live there, it's still your home village. They completely get it. Yeah, that's fascinating. I was talking about that the other day with someone about Scotland, because you tend to have, you know, people would live in the cities, but then they have their ancestral place that they're from. So my gran has always lived in Glasgow. She's like, you know, only moved when she was like evacuated. But when she was evacuated, she obviously went to her like, you know, ancestral thing where she can walk around the graveyard and for like centuries back and be like this is so and so this is this and like it's so interesting to have that kind of relationship with the place so your village <laughs> tell me more about it what's your relationship with it yeah. Mm. Uh, well, we actually uh, moved there when I was six. Um, so we moved there sort of in the early 1970s. Um, and my mum just completely embraced the place. It's a tiny village. I think it's it's grown in size now because there's been some new buildings. So there's about 600 people live there now. But when I grew up in there, I think it's more like 400. Um, mostly at that time, um, lots and lots of farms, dairy farms. Um, and it's not like dramatic landscape where I come from at all. It's just like very low, boggy hedges. Um, you know, there's... there's the welsh hills in the distance so you can never get lost because you just look because everything's so flat you can always see the welsh hills so you go oh that's west so you know you can find your way home and then um it's it's got sort of lots of like muddy footpaths and big old hedges and but it's terribly undramatic um yeah and my my mum i think just decided that she really really wanted to belong there And she set about, she talked to all the old people. She collected all the stories that she could. She found out about what all the place names meant. And, you know, she completely immersed herself in the place. And I think was very, very happy there. I think that, um, you know, remembering my mum there is remembering her, like when she was having a really good time. <laughs> that I think what your book has that I really loved is this like passion for kind of medieval British history that kind of period of like medieval England and it really kind of re-engages with aspects of culture that we kind of forget like we study Chaucer a bit sometimes but we have much more like you know Dickens is probably more revered in terms of at least like modern scholarship and Yeah. now as soon as I read it I suddenly had this huge appreciation for where I, for like my so I'm from my parents live in Winchester now and I'm from a town like nearby where it kind of has that similar sense of you know all the gossip and all the kind of like things that you have going on or like you go to the pub and
um, I don't think I really needed to know the poem that well when it came to it. I sort of had to let that go a bit because once my narrator becomes obsessed with the poem herself and then she tries to illustrate it and she tries um, to like make a version of it in another artistic form of course I am really talking about my own process of being obsessed with that poem and wanting to make an illustration or response to it but in another form and the fact is that um, I misremembered lots and lots of things about it during the course of that you know there's one little bit near the beginning where the father goes to the grave and he falls asleep and he hears beautiful songs he says never heard such beautiful music as he heard in the silence as he falls asleep on the grave and um to me this was like really really important the songs were really important that the songs were like what took him into his dream vision where he visits his daughter in heaven on the other side of the river and these songs were that was why i put songs at the start of every chapter that's why i've got so many songs going through the book Lots of them just because that my mum really liked them and I wanted to put her favourites in. But lots of them, I just had to find a song that fitted, you know, what was happening. And then I went back to the original poem and I tried to find the reference to the songs. And to me, this was like massively important, you know, so much so that I structured my book around it. Went back, it's half a line. Wow. It's half a line, I was like, how has that become so important in your mind and your image of this poem and your understanding of it? And you go back and you try and find it and it's like, oh, well, it's there and gone. Yeah. That's so, so um yeah, I, I don't I, I don't think that I ever really knew the poem very well. Um I just I knew I loved it. I think that's all. That's such a beautiful way of putting it I was talking today on on TikTok about a lot of writers or filmmakers or artists they talk about their favorite art and I've had people talk about the same like creatives the same artists and they have such different understandings of their work but they're equally obsessed and I think there's a there's an idea that to find your unique voice you either isolate or you read like you know the greats or something but actually it's so interesting how people going back to things they love over and over again are creating their own unique thing without even realizing it they're just kind of yeah yeah so you're almost translating anyway you're almost being a translator Mm. anyway and because your version in your head is not what's there and I sort of tried to talk about that with the the narrator trying to go back over and over again that she thinks it's like some sort of magic spell if she can perfectly create the whole of the poem that it's going to offer consolation it's going going to have like some sort of magic sense of completion um but she isn't very she she isn't an expert in medieval literature either you know she basically gets a few key images and makes a great big messy collage of it you know and I guess that's really what I feel I've done that I've had like a few strong impressions of it um and a lifelong love of it and I've just made this big messy collage where it's in there somewhere but you know go find it if you can you know (laughs) yeah I think I mean, I am by no means an expert in medieval studies or anything, but I think at least the modern perception of that time period, those cultures, is that kind of human messiness, that kind of little something that comes through in your book, that actually maybe having a character who doesn't know everything kind of brings it to life a lot more. Like you feel like there, she's bridging the gap almost between the original poet I mean, like you said, translation, you're getting that sense of how a person reading that poem at the time might have felt, because it's such a universal thing that you're talking about. And that kind of ritual of memory and loss is so universal, I guess, like everyone can kind of relate to that feeling of if you get the memory just about right, maybe that means something. Yeah. Which is, yeah, how did you so. know about exploring memory in the book because it's fascinating 
I wasn't really set out to do that consciously at all. Um, I just wanted the book to feel like a memoir. So um, by having you know one narrator who can only ever know the bits that she sees and therefore can't know the whole story. Um, so as soon as you've decided that it's only going to be one viewpoint, you immediately, uh, whether you like it or not, have got to deal with those questions about memory um, because you, um, I know a lot more about the other characters or I know things that like are not in the book because when you're making up characters, you know, the, you, you do like investigate them a lot. Um, but then when you've decided which person is going to tell it, you lose lots and lots of that stuff. And so you immediately, you're into the realm of one person's guesswork and one person's memory and what they could feasibly have remembered at different points in their lives or how their particular path through life will affect those memories. I think as soon as you pick a narrator, you automatically have to deal with the fact that memory is a really complicated thing. I was going to ask you about the character of Edward because I think he's a really interesting like you he could have been the narrator and maybe at one point you yeah. thought he might be. Well, I no I don't think I'd ever feel yeah. um I don't think I'd ever feel uh, confident to write from a male point of view. Oh that's um, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I think that would so um there there are like obviously there are there's like a little thank you note to Anne Tyler in the book because I really, really love Anne Tyler. And one of the things I find really interesting with her is that um, I think some of her best characters are men. Some of the best viewpoints that she she does are male. And I think that's very, very interesting. And I think that she gets very interesting effects from that, that she tends to specialise in people who... Um, are struggling to sort of find a, a strong sense of self and somehow this distancing that she does by by adopting the male view um viewpoint seems to seems to play into that um so i do think it's very, very interesting when people do that but i've never felt confident to and um so this character edward I'm really surprised that lots and lots of readers have asked me about him and have said, um, you know, that, that that they really like him because I've always felt that he's quite heroic. He's sort of quietly heroic. Um, I really admire him, you know, but I didn't think that I'd ever that I had made his heroism very clear or obvious because obviously it's from his daughter's point of view. And so his, you know, main function in her life is like to always just be there, just be himself, just be there, you know, get stuff wrong, mess up, try again, apologize, notice things, not notice things, you know, all the normal stuff that you do that just from being there all the time. Um, so I've always really liked him, but I had no idea if anybody else would because they were seeing him from his daughter's point of view. And therefore she's just taking him for granted. She's she's not sort of describing him or saying how great he is because most of her life he's just been what's always there. I guess that kind of differentiates how she describes her two parents. You have one parent who you get to see who he is just by what he's doing and the other parent who is this kind of collection of memories. But then they kind of meet at the end, you know, when you talk about how the house is left on that day I guess you know it becomes a conversation about how people show you who they are and what their intentions are mm. Edward's that kind of you know that's what comes across to the reader he's a fascinating character in terms of because you never get what he's thinking he never really turns around and says you know you know what this has been really tough for me as well there's like but <laughs> As yeah, he very rarely, he very rarely steps into the frame and says, do you know what, Marianne, really? Yeah. Um, just once or twice he says things that give you a little bit of oh insight into something he struggled yeah. with. You know, like when he says to her, I'm only going to give you one piece of advice about work, Marianne, don't sleep with your boss, believe me. You know, <laughs> and that's like, that's all that he says. And you think, 
oh yeah that explains that whole that whole storyline like yeah uh, you think oh right okay yes that was a total disaster for him too you know um and that whole shadowy because obviously it's his ex-girlfriend um that sort of that story then sort of plays into Marianne's and it's sort of supposed to be I don't know if it's successfully is it's supposed to be a kind of version of the Cinderella myth that the Cinderella myth of the you know the the shadowy stepmother and the stepsister who deprives her of food um and who has this big jealousy of her and like sets her up um for all kinds of disasters that that was supposed to be a sort of a kind of a Cinderella myth um at that point and that's so interesting because Edward kind of becomes almost like a a central character for forgiveness in the book I suppose and you really get that in that exchange that actually if he had been fully aware that was what was happening he would have stepped in but he's not particularly a an aggressive or vengeful figure like he understands what's happened but he's Mm. way more interested in how his daughter feels about it what's going to happen now and like you know Mm. move on and yeah he almost has like a creative energy I guess that he shares with his wife because they both seem to be able to uh, yeah accept things that have happened and kind of go well you know we're still gonna yeah but, lives and yeah but then he sort of learns from that experience that he realizes that he hadn't understood enough about what was happening in his wife's mind he hadn't understood how fragile she was and then when Marianne gets ill that um after she has her baby that it's almost her mother that saves her as well as Edward because he's seen how badly wrong it can go once. And so um, he's he's determined it's not going to happen again. And he steps up and he steps in and, and he makes sure that he is fully present and he does understand what's going on. But it is almost like a gift from her mother at that point that because of what's happened to her mother, he knows what he needs to do and he's he's there for her. That form of mental illness is something that I feel very uninformed on. What is it? How does it work? Uh, well, the I suppose the the main mental illness that um, is like an important part of the plot in this in in Pearl is postpartum psychosis, um, which is just um, it's another facet really of postpartum depression. So if uh, a person suffering from postpartum depression it may tip over into psychosis like can quite easily tip over especially as like the main way to induce psychosis in any human brain is to deprive them of sleep <laughs> the army do it on purpose they deliberately oh. break people's sleep just to see how much they can take so they know which people can which people's minds will stay with reality longest. But basically every single human brain will tip over into giving you inaccurate information. Your senses will give you the wrong information if you are subjected to adrenaline shocks um, and sleep loss. Eventually your brain will just start messing stuff up and you'll hear things that are not there and you'll see things that are not there and what you're seeing and hearing won't be reliable um and um the most common times in a woman's life where her mind might do that um would be adolescence and um postpartum wow and it's terrifying but so interesting it doesn't get spoken about very often I feel like maybe postpartum depression is kind of I don't know like there's still such a taboo about it that yeah because you're supposed to be feeling so happy you're not supposed to you're not supposed to be falling apart and you know also you've got a really vulnerable person to look after a really really tiny person who requires you to be very sane Mm-hmm. Um, but you are at your highest risk of not being put properly present at that time. Um, and uh, when when I had that after my second child, 
um I had no idea what was happening to me I was absolutely clueless and I was just by total luck there was a little like homemade leaflet that they were handing out at the GPs where you went to weigh the baby every week there was a like little clinic and they were just handing out I hand out like leaflets about all sorts of stuff and there was one that was just um it wasn't even an NHS one it was like a a counsellor who lived nearby who was just explaining what services she did and she just briefly explained what it was and how she could help and I was just so relieved I was so pleased because it had a name and I was like oh right so that means that I'm actually a bit poorly and it's not my fault I haven't done anything wrong and there's somebody who and it's perfectly okay you get better from it and this person will help you get better from it um, but I would have considered myself a fairly well-informed mid-30s person at that point. Um, I'd already had one child. No one had ever mentioned it to me then or warned me about it or said what it might feel like or anything. Um, I knew lots and lots of other friends who'd had babies. Nobody had mentioned this at all. So if I hadn't had that little piece of paper, I'm... I would have just continued to feel just really, really confused and upset and not know what on earth was happening. Yeah, there's a lot of stories in in my family of women feeling that way, but they always come at times, you know, like wartime or something like that. So like, yeah, goes under the radar because people think like, oh, they're just really tired or they're just really overwhelmed. But actually there is this whole, you know. Yeah, but being really tired and really overwhelmed and, you know, having too much adrenaline in your system because you've been having to keep yourself falsely awake when your body desperately needs to sleep or because you had like big shocks and scars, whatever. Um, they, those things will make your mind really fragile and, and, you know, it can stop working properly really easily. It can stop working properly. And of course it's very frightening, but it's a lot less frightening if someone's told you what it's called and yeah. that it's not your fault and you're going to get better then it's suddenly not so frightening. Yeah, it doesn't seem frightening in the book, which is really interesting, even though there is this huge risk and there is like, you know, so much that can happen. Kind of give a very, I guess, like a poetic, but not poetic in terms of romanticising, but in terms of explaining it so that a normal human can communicate with, like get what it feels like yeah. and what this thing is. Yeah, Was that your intention? Well, yes, I wanted partly to um, like demystify it, really, mm -hmm. and to just describe it in as straightforward and clear way as possible. Um, and but also to get across um, just how confusing it is, how how exhausting and confusing it is when you're trying to make sense of like everyday things. Um, that there's nothing sort of romantic or interesting about it in some ways. I didn't want it to. Um, yeah, I suppose I deliberately didn't want it to sound like romanticised or interesting in itself, you know, just confusing and upsetting. Um, and um, in in the book, Marianne sees, um, she sees cats. She thinks there are cats in her house. And she's really, really frightened that the cat, because they're not her cats, she doesn't have a cat, that she thinks, well, you know, they're going to bring germs in and they, I can't have germs in the house because I've got a baby and um what if I trip over the cats you know because they're right there under my feet and um what when the midwife comes and she sees that there are these cats and she'll smell them and you know she'll think that I'm an unfit mother and um that thing about having like funny smells uh, that's like a really common thing as well wow it's such an interesting thing to write about as well was what was the link for you between this idea of place, the the poem Pearl, and this specific kind of postpartum depression. And well, it was really that um, once I had killed off my main character, um, cruelly, um, <laughs> and <laughs> I really didn't know why. You know, when when I randomly picked that person to die, um. I immediately missed her because she was like, one of my favourites. I didn't want her to die. And then I thought, well, maybe if I miss her, maybe my readers will miss her too. 
Um, and But I didn't know why she'd done it. So I didn't start off the book having a clear idea in my mind as to why that woman would do that thing. Um, and then I just gradually over time tried to understand how she might have been in such a fragile and dangerous state of mind. And so postpartum psychosis was, if you like, only one more clue. And it was a clue that I acquired like years and years later. And I thought, hang on a minute. What if this person's state of mind is really delicate because of this? What Maybe this is what's going on. Um, but obviously because the viewpoint that I've chosen is not the person who does do that, um, she can't ever know for sure why either. Um, so I, I think that once I had sort of experienced that myself and then spoke to lots of other women who had as well, because obviously once you've had that experience, you're very keen to find other people who have too and reassure other people as well and say, no, 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 it's nothing terribly the matter with you, you know, and try to um, be open about it so that it's, it's not so scary for other people as well. Um, that gave me a clue and I thought maybe if Marianne, like me, suffers a version of that herself that she might begin to think um maybe that was happening to my mom but she can't know so i guess it appeared in my life as a kind of a clue to this missing character that i already had and i didn't know why she was missing well i hope you guys enjoyed that i will share part two asap so keep an eye out I'll update you on TikTok at GraceBailey738, but I'm guessing that's how you found me. And if you haven't already, go back and listen to previous episodes. I particularly recommend Sarah Nankavell's uh, interview about culture in Gaza. I think, you know, I mean, you know. So give that one a listen because she is an incredible human rights advocate and investigator. The next episode of Sean, obviously, and then after that, we have Ijanovi, who is a wonderful author, a lecturer at Princeton and NYU in writing. So if you're one of our little writer girlies out there, there's some good stuff coming up and previously also loads of art. <laughs>